Here we go, rejecting the screen, the going ISO edition as we do every week. Noah Koslov out here on the East Coast. Out West is Adam Stanko. Our guest today, Stu Jackson, the Associate Commissioner of the Big East, the former Knicks head coach, the former GM of the Vancouver Grizzlies. He was the head coach at Wisconsin. He's the former Executive Vice President of Basketball Operations at the NBA. And Stu, we're going to go all over the place, but I want to start when you get the Knicks job at 33, you've got a two-year-old at home and infant twins. How much sleep are you getting? Wow, boy, that does take me back. Uh, you know, first of all, guys, thanks for having me on. I truly appreciate it. Uh, but yeah, that was a, a very uh, tumultuous time, um, not only for me, uh, but also for my family, but at the same time, one of the happiest times of my life and becoming the head coach of the New York Knicks. Uh, you know, at the time, as you mentioned, we were starting a, a young family. Uh, I reflect back to those days and, you know, the amount of work that uh, goes in uh, for any staff of any NBA team and trying to do that while raising a young family was certainly an interesting time. I mean, I, I remember, you know, times when I was uh, up watching game film, um, you know, like with one twin in one arm and one twin in another arm. And the remote sort of uh, wedged in between my thumbs between them. So, I, I mean, it was uh, it was an exciting time, a fun time, and an experience that uh, I wouldn't trade for anything. How did you find any sort of balance? Well, you you really you really don't, uh, quite frankly. I mean, in between the preparation time for both practice and games and you know, the days at the office uh, speaking to coaches and players, um, you don't find any balance. And if not for, you know, a very supportive family, um, I, I don't know how I could may have made it through those days or, or many of the days that I spent, uh, you know, with the Knicks or at Wisconsin or in Vancouver. So, uh, you know, it just takes a, a special, I think, a family and and partner to endure those kinds of days and an understanding of what it really takes uh, to try to achieve success in all those roles. Stu, prior to you becoming the head coach of the Knicks, I mean, Noah was talking about your resume. You had coaching stints at Oregon, Washington State, Providence, uh, under Rick Pitino. But when you became head coach of the Knicks, that was your first head coaching gig at, a, at any level. And guys talk all the time about the difficulty when you go when you move over those those few inches from that assistant coach's chair to the head coach. What were some of the biggest challenges when you became a head coach? Yeah, no, it's a very good point. Uh, you know, it's a it's a big jump uh, to make from that one seat over into the head coach's chair, particularly uh, making that jump uh, at the NBA level. And um, you know, the challenges were, I mean, immense. Uh, albeit that, you know, in accepting the head coaching position, I felt prepared, uh, whether I was or not, who knows, but I certainly felt prepared and I owe a lot of that, um, you know, to uh, Rick Pitino. Uh, I, I felt prepared to compete. I felt prepared to, you know, um, you know, game plan for games. I felt prepared in terms of, you know, my relationships with the players. But taking on that different role, uh, it's a real eye opener, you know, for, for the players that you coach. And, you know, as, as a coach in making that move, you just try to do the best you can to uh, stay true to yourself. Um, 
and, you know, stay true to the players, care about them, try to help them professionally to do their jobs better. And you, you kind of go from there. But, you know, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that you make mistakes, you know, when you've never been a head coach and uh, you jump over that one seat and you constantly have to uh, reevaluate yourself and, um, you know, try to correct mistakes, be honest and try to communicate and make your way through it. We'll get back to the time with the Knicks. Let's go back to that time at Providence. What, what was a typical post-practice in Bettino's office with Jeff Van Gundy and others like? Oh, my goodness. Uh, that was just that, – that was some ride. I, I, I can't even listen to somebody mention it without, uh, you know, getting a smile on my face. Um, you, know, uh, you know, working from Rick uh, was unique. And uh, that was the Rick uh, Patino, uh, you know, when he was still very young and, you know, full of, uh, you know, piss and vinegar, for lack of a better term. And, you know, our days would start very, very early uh, in the morning and extend very, very late uh, into the evening. And, you know, one thing about Rick that, uh, you know, I always uh, admired and I'm grateful for, uh, you know, being an assistant coach for Rick Patino was not the easiest thing to do uh, from, you know, a work standpoint. It, there was a lot of it. And I often say that I don't know if I could have actually uh, been married and had a family and still Rick, uh, work for Rick Patino. But the flip side was, you know, Rick really, I, I thought with his assistants, you know, he had the ability and the confidence to delegate. So because he delegated a lot of things and had a high level of expectation and excellence from all of his assistants, it really was like, uh, you know, a tutelage and a, and a, and a real learning experience uh, because he involved you in all facets of the basketball program. You know, we all recruited. We all participated in scouting and game planning. We all were responsible for you know, individual instruction of our players. We all, you know, were responsible for being, you know, uh, fiscally responsible to, you know, to the program. So you, you were involved in nearly every facet of the program. And he, you know, I thought uh, w was a great leader in terms of holding you accountable, establishing those, you know, standards for excellence and expectation out of, out of each assistant coach and at the end of it, you, you come out and you're a better coach. I mean, there, there's no question about it. And while, you know, as difficult as it was and the long hours that you put in, there, the, the benefit completely outweighed, uh, you know, some of the stresses. Sue certainly knows how to build things and repair things and put programs back together. That's what he did at Wisconsin. That's mm -hmm. what he's trying to do in Vancouver and Look, being the head coach of New York is as challenging of a job as there is. But if you're doing all of this for your car, don't make it so challenging. Just go to rockauto.com because they have everything you'll ever need for your car everything. or truck, no matter the make, no matter the model. Rockauto.com, the catalog is so easy to get through. You can see all the parts available for your vehicle, choose the brand, specifications, even the prices that you prefer, because the prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low, 
and they're the same for the professionals and the clowns like us. It doesn't say clowns here. It says the do-it-yourselfers. Why spend up to twice as much for the same parts? Makes a whole lot of sense to me. Go to rockauto.com right now. See all the parts available for your car or truck. Make sure you write locked on, L-O-C-K-E-D space O-N in the box that says, how did you hear about us? So that they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. Well, you talk about that staff, and it's it's crazy to think back who who was on it. Herb Sendek, uh, people might remember Harden's coach at ASU. Uh, Gordon Chiesa, the longtime jazz assistant coach. Sean Kearney, longtime college coach. And, of course, Billy Donovan is is, is your star point guard. But there's, there's an interesting th- story that I came across about how Patino wanted to get out run and shoot a lot of threes, which you guys certainly did. You were innovative in that regard. And I think I, I, I read that it all started with a meeting that the two of you had in a sauna. What can you tell me about that story? No, well, I can tell you that, that story is true. And that, you know, I tell this uh, and I'll, I'll tell anyone who will take time to listen to me um, <laughs> about this topic Rick Patino was the first coach that I recall that utilized modern-day analytics back in the mid-'80s. He was the first coach. you got to remember, the rule had just changed to allow you know, the three-point shot in college basketball, and it took Rick about a nanosecond to figure out that it was more efficient to shoot X number of threes and make a certain percentage than it was to shoot X number of twos making a certain percentage at 50%, okay? And he, uh, he came into a meeting. He used to like to, you know, work out and play basketball. We play three-on-three, two-on-two uh, at nauseum. And then oftentimes – uh, you know, we play those games after a meeting, but after we played, we'd have another meeting. And those meetings oftentimes would take place in the sauna because he liked <laughs> to have a sauna before, uh, you know, we, we went to the showers. And I swear to this day, he had these meetings in the sauna uh, because he wanted to see which one of us, not him, passed out, uh, you know, and couldn't take it and had to leave the sauna. And I was usually first to leave. But anyway, you know, this one particular day, guys, you know, we're in there, you know, like we always are, and he's got the magnetic board out, you know, with the little magnetic pieces and, you know, moving it around, and he sort of moved the pieces off, and he's taking the marker, and he's showing us uh, basically the math, you know. We're going to take a lot of threes. Now, at the time, I got to tell you, just if I can uh, sidetrack here for a second, uh, we, we were like one of the worst shooting teams I ever saw, okay? And now all of a sudden, he's coming in with this theory – that we're going to take a lot of three-point shots, and this is going to be our ticket to being a competitive basketball team. So, listen, he's Rick Patino. You're not going to, like, push back. I didn't know enough about the mathematics at the time or the data to push back intelligently and, you know, to have a rebuttal. But so he went through it, and he told us this is what we're going to do. And, you know, what the fact that gets lost is 
his plan was to individually develop each one of the players into quality three-point shooters. Okay? That included Billy Donovan. It included Pop Lewis. It included Donnie Brown and Harold Starks and, 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 and guys that weren't used to taking three-point shots on our first team. And, you know, it was during that first year that, you know, we started to establish, you know, who our identity and who we were going to be and, uh, you know, play at that kind of fast pace uh, in a higher possession game. And that was going to be our edge against the lack of talent, the seemingly lack of shooting ability, and the lack of size. We were going to negate all that by individually developing players into the type players that fit that system. And damn it, I'm telling you, he did it. We did it. And, you know, the, the rest of the story goes, I mean, that by that second year, uh, you know, we had a pretty good basketball team and one that eventually uh, went to the Final Four. What, what was it like being back on campus after each one of those weekends during that tournament? Oh, it was just, uh, you know, it was, it was, you know, after the first weekend, you know, I, I'll tell you what, I, I, I didn't believe it, you know, uh, that we had just gone through and, uh, you know, won two basketball games. I mean, we, you know, during the first weekend, we almost lost to a team we shouldn't have lost to, uh, Austin P. Um, and I believe we played them, um, it was probably in Birmingham, Alabama, I think. And we were down 10 with like, um, you know, minutes to go and miraculously came back, you know, won that basketball game and, you know, uh, eventually went on to the second round. But our first, uh, you know, opponent in the second round, uh, guys, was the University of Alabama. And they had Derek McKee and, 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 and Gottfried and Farmer and, 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 and Ainsley and all these athletes, uh, you know, play, and we're playing against them. And I didn't think there was any way, and neither did Rick at the beginning of the week, there was any way that we could beat this team. They were just too talented and too athletic and could play at the kind of pace that we wanted to play at. But we end up beating them, and then we end up beating Georgetown that second weekend, a team that had thumped us three times during the regular season, and we end up beating them by double digits. So, you know, as we, you know, as this started to steamroll over the first two weekends of March Madness, I think everybody was in dis- disbelief. The coaches, the players, the students on campus, but, you know, <laughs> we were just riding a wave. Billy Donovan has this incredible run. And uh, Van Gundy even said, we, we, we all owe Bill. Bill should be cashing in royalty checks. We should owe him 10% of all we make because everybody's career benefited from that final four year. And he and coach Patino were the reasons we all ascended to where we got no question. The interesting thing is Patino then goes on to take this next job. You follow him as an assistant. And next thing you know, Billy Donovan and Mark Jackson are both rookies on, on that next team. Were the three of you guys having, what were the conversations like between the three of you that all of a sudden everything you just did, in college, now you're all together trying to do the same thing in the NBA. Yeah, you know, it was, it was interesting because, you know, Rick, I thought, really took on uh, a big task in terms of bringing uh, Billy Donovan into the Nick camp uh, because it wasn't only Billy Donovan. It, it's the rest of the players. They all understood that we just made that run together. And there was a sense of, you know, this is a different environment. This is not college. 
it's the NBA. You know, Billy Donovan is just a struggling rookie to the other veteran players on the Knicks. But somehow Rick was able to sell it. And if for nothing else, you know, Billy uh, played well in camp. But if nothing else, what he did was sort of help establish how Rick wanted to do things, you know, from a player standpoint and the type of tempo that we wanted to play at, the type of commitment and work ethic, you know, Billy in his own small way was a living example for players that have been in the NBA for, you know, some of them a decade. So it it served its purpose. Uh, As it turns out, you know, Billy wasn't, you know, that level of player uh, to stick in the NBA. But I think for the short time that he was there, uh, the relationship worked. Uh, it served a purpose. And, and again, in a small way, we benefited, Me, we meaning Rick and, and, and I, uh, just in terms of what we were going to require from that Nick team. From the inside, why didn't it work out with Rick there? Uh, well, uh, it, you know, it, it, it did work out. It actually did work out. Uh, if not for uh, a relationship that had soured, uh, between Rick and the then general manager, um, Al Bianchi, you know, rest in peace. Uh, that was really the cause of, you know, the departure of Rick from uh, the New York Knicks. And I have to also uh, attribute part of that departure, and this is a good thing, uh, to a great man, uh, C.M. Newton, who was able to lure Rick, you know, away from the Knicks to the University of Kentucky. And, you know, for those of us that, you know, knew CM and had the, you know, honor of being around him, uh, I I can now understand today why Rick was totally, you know, enthralled with not only the prospect of, uh, you know, the University of Kentucky basketball program, but also I think a big part of it was to work for someone like CM Newton, uh, knowing what I know now. So I get it. But I think the combination of a bad relationship, working relationship with the Knicks, and the combination of the lure of uh, University of Kentucky led Rick to make what I thought was, a, a, again, an innovative move. In 1990, when you're coaching in the playoffs as the five seed against the four seed Celtics, lose game one, game two in Boston, 157-128. Got a few days off before game three. Did you train? Or did you fly between Boston and New York? And what was that night like coming back for game three before going on to end up winning the series? Yeah, no, fair question. Uh, and and there's a key, there's a key uh, to that whole sequence of, of days. And the key was, yeah, I mean, we got our doors blown off, um, you know, uh, in Boston in that, you know, in that second, or that second game, got our doors blown off. But fortunately, when we flew back, uh, after the game, um, as I recall, uh, we had, I believe three days in between games. Um, so, you know, it gave us a day to kind of go back and really, you know, lick our wounds, you know, uh, get over the devastation of being beat so badly in the playoffs uh, by a very good basketball team, 
But as good as they were, we thought that we were better and we didn't perform at a level in game two that we felt we could have. So we were feeling a little bit sorry for ourselves. That day gave us a chance to sort of get ourselves to get back together mentally. And then we came back for practice two days after that blowout. And, you know, we talked and, you know, we communicated and we started anew. And what I remember is, you know, we had two of the best days of practice that we had had probably all year. So I felt that, but more importantly, the players felt that going into game three. And sure enough, we went into game three and we played some pretty good basketball. And we're fortunate enough to come out with that victory. So now you're in a mode of, okay, let's just take them one game at a time. We have one victory. Let's see if we can get another. And game four, we got another. And all of a sudden, the series is tied. Uh, and we were now headed, you know, to Boston, you know, for game five. And as you know, in any sort of do or die, win or go home type of game, regardless of where you're playing, anything can happen. And that anything worked out very well for us because we probably played as well defensively in game five as we played certainly throughout that series, but maybe the entire season. Uh, and you remember that we were playing against a team that was, you know, it was McHale, Parrish, Bird, uh, DJ. I mean, you know, all the greats. And, you know, fortunately, uh, you know, we played some of our best basketball. We played well defensively, as I mentioned. We shot the ball really well. Uh, we executed a game plan, I, I, I thought, almost flawlessly. We changed some matchups, um, you know, particularly in the front court with Patrick and Oakley against McHale and Parrish. And that, and that worked out well. So, you know, we came out with a victory and uh, just a, a real highlight of that season. You just mentioned Ewing. In game four, he goes for 44, 13 boards, and seven steals. Just absurd. You know, oftentimes we look back at Ewing's career and we think of, and people talk about it as though, well, he never won a title. And, you know, did he come up big in big moments? And you look at that game in particular, that series, and, and many other times. What did you see from Ewing on, on that night? Well, I, what I saw from Patrick is what you would see, you know, um, any day in practice in most game nights. I, I always describe uh, Patrick as being a player that truly had a disposition to dominate. You know, it, you know and that's the way I describe his level of competitiveness. I, I really felt that Patrick, you know, loved the game so much and wanted to win so badly that it didn't matter who he was playing against, he would try to destroy you, okay? Mm. I don't mm -hmm. care if it was Patrick Ewing playing against, you know, uh, you know five other middle school players um, or, you know, or, you know, five other high school or college players. He would play the game with the type of intensity to try to dominate you in an effort to win. And, yes, some nights, you know, he was better than others. And you come up with 44, you know, point nights, 13 rebounds and seven steals. Uh, but it, it was of no surprise, I think, to any of us 
that he did it. It's just that he was having one of those nights that was that was special. Whose life did he use to make miserable in practice? Oh boy, uh, every, everyone, you know. But you know, I, I, you know, I also give a lot of credit to Charles Oakley because Charles, you know, in his own way, really uh, challenged Patrick on a day-to-day basis defensively and made him raise his level. And you say, well, how could that be? Charles is only 6'9", didn't jump very well, wasn't a great athlete, but but, but, but Charles Oakley was a great low-post defender and could really body you, leverage you. He had the ability to move his feet, you know, to get to stay in front of you. And he was very difficult, you know, to score on. I mean – just ask Kevin McHale and, and Robert Parrish. And he challenged uh, Patrick every day. And, and, and I think helped make him a better player. I want to go back to that, that series. When Mark Jackson did not play in game five and his role was reduced throughout that series, did he know or did, I should say, did you know going into game five that Mark wasn't going to play? I, you know, I absolutely did not know that he was, wasn't going to play. It was just, you know, it's a game five. It's a do or die situation, as I said, win or go home. And that evening, you know, Maurice Cheeks played about his best basketball as he could play at the age of 35 on that particular day. And the orchestration that he showed of our basketball team, the attention to detail in terms of the game plan, his peskiness on defense, his, you know, his flawless control and taking care of the basketball on offense, his ability to get people in the right spots, his ability to lead, I, I mean, just were impeccable. And, you know, as the game wore on, you know, we made it past the first rotation where he wasn't subbed. And, you know, I didn't sub him. And I asked him how he was feeling and whether he was telling the truth or not. He said, I feel fine because, you know, in a game five, do or die, we could ill afford uh, to slip up. It's like when you've got your starting pitcher, you know, who's just pitched, you know, his obligatory eight, you know, seven innings and you're ready to bring in the relievers. You know, we didn't bring in the relievers because Mm -hmm. we thought we were better off sticking with our starting pitcher. And we did. And, uh, you know, fortunately, uh, it, it turned out, but it, after the game, he was gassed. Yeah, well, gassed with a victory is a whole lot better than gassed with a loss. That that next year, so you had signed a three-year deal, and that next year, after, so you're fired at when the team's seven and eight in your second year. After the Milwaukee loss on a Friday night, you were asked about your job being in jeopardy, and you said no. I'm not concerned. You end up winning on Saturday and then losing your job. When you're facing the media that night and you say, no, I'm not concerned, were you really not concerned? Well, I I think that was more of, you know, you never want people to see you sweat, you know, but I, you know, I had heard the rumblings of, you know, um, Al Bianchi, you know, wanting to bring in, you know, his friend to coach the team and, you know, he wasn't necessarily happy with the style that we played um, and wanted a more traditional pattern-oriented type offense. 
Uh, I mean, all those things were true. So, uh, you know, and, you know, quite frankly, I think not, I think, I know that John McLeod, who's a marvelous coach, um, you know, he would have been brought in after Rick Pitino left, except he didn't make himself available. So, you know, my margin for error, you know, was, was slim. And the first opportunity that I felt that Al Bianchi could use to justify uh, even slightly my departure, even though we were seven and eight or whatever, and it just won, you know, he did it. So, uh, you know, I, I understood that, um, you know, I certainly was upset about it, but I understood where this was going, but I knew all along, even through my first year that our margin of error was very, very thin. So then, so then going back to the, the very first question that we asked, you've got, a two-year-old at home, you've got <laughs> twins, and now out of a job in New York. What's that first night like? Uh, you know, it was fine. I mean, it, and really, I, I mean that. I mean, I, I remember um, leaving uh, SUNY Purchase, <clears throat> where you know where we practice, and you know Al Bianchi and I spoke, and you know he informed me he was going a different direction. I, I remember. Uh, you know, on the drive home, I stopped and I called, uh, you know, my wife at the time and I told her, and then I called, uh, you know, uh, you know, my mother and father and, uh, I got on the phone, uh, you know, my mother answered and, you know, I told her what had happened and, you know, I probably sounded a little bit upset and immediately she started talking about uh, her, her, uh, her grandkids. And she started to talk about, you know, one of my aunts and what she was doing that day and the responsibilities she had to go, you know, take my aunt shopping. And she started to talk about just these other things to a point where I said to her, I said, mom, uh, did you, did you hear me? What I said? Uh, you know, I, I, you know, do you understand what I just said? I said, I just got fired as a head coach of the Knicks. And she snapped back at me and she said, yeah, I heard you. I said, basically, well, and she said, well, let me ask you something. She goes, you know, did, did you enjoy being head coach of the Knicks? I said, mom, greatest experience of, of my life, maybe other than, you know, having a family. And she said, well, did you try and do your best at what you do? I said, absolutely, mom, put a lot of time, put a lot of work into this. She says, okay, well, then, you know, move on. But her message was basically like, okay, let's get back to worrying about things that matter. Because this was just a blip on the radar. And, you know, you need to, you know, uh, you know, you know, strap a couple on and just like, you know, move on. And it was a, it was a valuable lesson, a valuable life lesson that could only come from you know, a woman that, you know, I was fortunate enough to call my mother. After the Knicks and after taking that that advice and you're moving on, you go to Wisconsin as head coach. You then work with Stan Van Gundy. So so better Van Gundy to work with, Jeff or Stan? <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I can say with some credibility, they, while they're, they're brothers, loving brothers and very, very close, um, in many respects, they're very different personalities. 
so the experience in working with both of them was quite different. But the common denominator of the Van Gundys, and that I'll include, you know, the Van Gundys, including Bill Van Gundy and their mother, the common denominator is, you know, they're all very smart. They are all committed to the game of basketball. They all have a very high uh, work ethic. Um, they all are constantly trying to find innovative ways to, you know, coach the game of basketball. Uh, and, you know, so from that standpoint, they were very much the same. And, you know, I had great experiences with them. I owe a lot to them just in terms of, you know, their, you know, their commitment to what we were doing. And um, so uh, I, I guess on balance, pretty much the same. There wasn't a lot of difference, even though their personalities were vastly different. Who would have tapped out of the sauna first, Jeff or Stan? <laughs> no, Jeff, Jeff was out of there almost as quick as I was. You know, only because I'm, he was probably competing with me. He wanted to see me drop first, and then he'd follow after it. When I was with Stan at Wisconsin, there were no meetings in Sodom. <laughs> when you were at Wisconsin, that's a program that hadn't been to the tournament since 1947 when it wasn't really a tournament. And then you guys get there in 94 on what – from what I was reading, it was a wild day for Wisconsin basketball on St. Patrick's Day in 94 in Ogden, Utah. Same day, same place, Wisconsin-Green Bay with um, – they they end up beating Jay Kidd and Lamont Murray and Cal that day, and then you guys beat Bob Huggins and Cincinnati that night. But trying to build that program, how did – having not gone to the tournament since 1947, and here you come, how did you get a 6'11", 265-pound Richard Griffith out of Chicago to come to Wisconsin? Well, yeah, that was, uh, boy, that was, uh, yeah, that was an interesting thing. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, because, I mean, not to bore you with the story, but we, you know, went to recruit Richard Griffith, who was at uh, King High School in Chicago, really out of obligation. You know, uh, you know, I, I was a, you know, a, a new coach there, uh, you know, only a year in. And we were recruiting Richard, um, you know, when I first got to campus, just out of obligation because he was like one of the best players in America. And he's literally 90 miles from our campus. So, sure, you have to make an attempt to, to recruit him just if for nothing else to say you made the attempt. And mm -hmm. I had no expectations that we would ever sign Richard Griffin. None at all. But, you know, we went down there. We visited Richard and his coach at, at the high school. And after that visit, we walked away and, you know, basically said, we got no shot here. You know, he, he, he's going to go to Illinois or he's going to go here or there. But as I started to, you know, follow up, as my assistants started to follow up and have conversations with Richard and with, um, you know, uh, the support system around him, it was evident to me, uh, only because they said it, you know, we'd like for you to keep recruiting us. Okay, sure, I'll keep recruiting you. But I can tell you on our recruiting board, he was not at the top of the list, only because we didn't think we could sign him. Wow. 
But we recruited him, and as we got to know him better, and more specifically, got to know his mother, Elaine, better, I think that what they wanted for Richard as a player and as a student and their value system, it all made sense to us that, okay, what we thought was an insurmountable, you know, uh, lead by the other schools that were recruiting him, maybe we had a shot. So we started, to, you know, I made the decision that we were actually going to pour some energy into recruiting Richard Griffith, which was dangerous because if you don't get him, it's at the expense of actually getting somebody else on your list. And so we started to really recruit him hard and to the point where, you know, uh, the rules were different then. So let me clarify that in the NCAA. I mean, I was going down to, you know, to Chicago to, to visit with Richard or I, I, I would go and I'd wait, you know, uh, you know, for his mother when she got off of her bus route in the south side of Chicago just to, you know, talk to her. I mean, hell, one time I got on the bus. You know, just rode up and down South <laughs> Chicago with her, you know, you know, just to have like a visit. So, uh, you know, we, you know, we pulled out all the stops and uh, boy, I'll tell you the day he committed to us, that was some day in our office and even a bigger day in Madison, Wisconsin. He was a monster. There's no, no question about that. When you leave Wisconsin and go to the Vancouver Grizzlies general manager, and the 1996 draft is talked about so much because of just how loaded that draft was. And you guys obviously took a terrific player, Sharif Abdurrahim. But two guys from that draft are interesting when you look back at uh, Steve Nash, because he's a Canadian kid from locally in the in the area and stuff. And and of course, Kobe Bryant and both those guys don't go till the teens. So I'm curious, Stu, just in terms of the pre-draft process. What was your thought about both of those players as you guys were approaching the the '96 draft? Yeah, no, that's a, that's an interesting question. I think with Kobe, not I think. I mean, with Kobe, you know, he he was a high school player. We were a very young franchise, and you know, uh, I, I think to draft a high school player at that point in our development as a franchise would have really uh, been going out on the limb, not having this player proven himself against, you know, a higher level of competition. Although I will tell you, you know, Kobe was extremely talented, but the other aspect of Kobe was he was not going to any franchise other than the Los Angeles Lakers. Now he got drafted by a different franchise, but that quickly turned around and he mm -hmm. ended up in Los Angeles and everyone in the draft knew that at that point. So we didn't think that was an option for Kobe Bryant coming to a new country or to, to Vancouver uh, to play basketball. So he was sort of off the board. Nash was a different story. That was a difficult one, you know, because Nash was from the area. He, you know, we were in Vancouver, Nash's family, uh, was from Victoria, which is the island directly adjacent to Vancouver. So he's a stone's throw away in terms of where he grew up. At the time coming out of, uh, uh, coming out of college, we did not think, you know, that he was necessarily uh, worthy of being picked, 
you know, as the as the second or third pick in the draft coming out of Santa Clara. Uh, we thought he was a really good player. Uh, certainly, if we had selected him, he would have sold a ton of tickets, obviously, and you know, been the darling of that city. And we would, as a franchise, benefited, you know, from that as well. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, we didn't think at the time, and certainly history, you know, would prove later, well, maybe he was the second or third pick in the draft. But at the time, uh, you know, uh, you know, that didn't make a lot of a sense for our franchise. And I think, I think Steve ended up getting picked, what, 18th or 20, 21st or somewhere in that range. 15th, he went. 15th, yeah, 15th. So, you know, and, and, and it's funny, his first couple of years in the NBA, he, he didn't play a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, that didn't matter. I mean, the rest of his history, he went on to become a two-time MVP. But at the time when you're making those decisions, I, I thought we made the sound one, you know, for, for our franchise at the time. Could you have traded down? Yeah, we looked into that. But, um, you know, as I recall, we wanted to trade down and basically get two other picks uh, in the lottery or around the lottery, uh, plus a veteran player. And we were were unable to secure that type of deal from anyone that was behind us. Was anyone close? Um, I don't recall that anyone was close. I mean, people gave us some lip service. Uh, because again, that, that, that high lottery pick was very valuable, but we didn't come across a deal that we liked. Did Kobe work out for you guys? No, no, did not even come to work out. That was a non-starter with, uh, with his camp. How about Nash? Nash did, Uh, you know, in front of a lot of fanfare, you know, I mean, that, that, that workout that we had, I think you were allowed to have them for, you know, a day or two, something like that. I mean, the media, the Canadian media, we had media from Toronto. We had media, you know, from, uh, you know, Alberta. We had media uh, from Manitoba. We had media from everywhere in Canada, including and also Seattle and across the Northwest. Uh, that was a big day because of, you know, it was like a local kid working out for his hometown team. Have, have you and Nash ever talked about that draft? Uh, no, we haven't. <laughs> no, we didn't. And, uh, you know, call me a chicken. Uh, you know, I, I you know, I, I, I never had that conversation with, with him never approached it with him. We just went on as professionals. Uh, I think we both understood, you know, why, uh, Vancouver did what it did. And, uh, certainly, uh, um, you know, he went on to great success and, you know, I, I couldn't have been happier for the success that he experienced. Uh, have you ever talked about the 07 suspensions? No, I, I don't talk to anybody about that. <laughs> okay, well, I, mean, I, was, I was just sticking with Nat. I was just sticking with Nash there and thinking about the thinking about the draft. And then you said you hadn't talked to him about that, and I didn't know if you'd talked to him at all. Yeah, he probably feels, man. He he probably feels that I gave him like the double whammy, you know. So first <laughs> I don't draft him, and then I may potentially have uh, you know cost him an NBA championship. So. Uh, you know, I've seen uh, I've seen Steve since then. Uh, matter of fact, I've seen him here in the city in New York, and um, you know, it's always friendly and cordial conversation. Uh, but I've never broached the subject with him, you know, about how we were professionally. We'll we'll get to some of the uh, the 
uh, your your time with the NBA. But but I am curious. One other question in regards to Grizzlies and and the draft. So, nineteen ninety nine, when you draft Steve Francis uh, second overall, he he ends up in front of the cameras just crying, and the reports come out he doesn't want to go to Vancouver and all of this. We saw that from like Steve Francis's perspective. From Stu Jackson's perspective, what was that day like for you? Well, it wasn't a fun day. Um, at, the, at the same time, I felt that, you know, confident in the fact that we had just drafted the best asset value, you know, for our young franchise. You know, we felt he was the second best player in the draft that year. I mean, it's tremendous, tremendous talent. And, you know, we owed it, you know, to the franchise and to the city to try and bring the best talent to the franchise that we could. Um, but what, in, you know, unfolded from there was just something, you know, you couldn't predict. And uh, ultimately we had, uh, we felt we had to, in the best interest of the franchise, trade him. Um, I, I, I think today, you know, I, you know, if Steve probably had to make that decision again, I don't know that he would have done the same thing. And if I had to make the decision to trade him, after we drafted him, I don't know that I would have done the same thing today. I, you know, I, w- I probably would have, should have just held his feet to the fire and mm. played without him until, you know, he decided to honor his contract. But the whole environment surrounding, you know, that incident and the days that followed were such a distraction you know, for, you know, our, for our franchise in the city of Vancouver that I pulled the trigger, you know, on a trade. But if I had to do all over again, I wouldn't have done that. Was there a trade offer that you had for him that in hindsight you would have rather have taken? No, I don't recall. I I don't recall the, uh, the exact scenarios and maybe I don't recall because I want to block it out of my mind, but uh, (laughs) yeah, I, I don't recall. Did, did you ever watch the, the clip of the, the interview with his grandma? Yeah, I, I did. Yeah, sure. I, I watched those clips. I watched clips of Steve. I watched clips of people around Steve that gave interviews. Uh, it wasn't a fun thing to watch. I watched it again last night, Stu. And I mean, I, mean, I remember Steve Francis's reaction but I don't remember his grandmother seeming dejected. Like you've never, I've never seen a a family member dejected for their kid taken in the NBA draft, let alone number two. When you end up then at the league and you end up making decisions, the the disciplinary decisions, Peter Vesey is, gives you the nickname in the post of the, the VP of viciousness and (laughs) dealings with, with Vessi when you're head coach of the Knicks, how often did you and commissioner Stern disagree on what discipline to hand out? Well, I mean, it would happen pretty frequently, Um, you know, but at the end of the day, the way that the uh, NBA bylaws are written, ultimately it's the commissioner's decision. And uh, certainly there was no one that uh, I think that I've ever worked for that I respected more than David Stern. Uh, But at the same time, you know, as, you know, the head of operations of the NBA and, you know, certainly uh, player and team discipline being, 
um, you know, part of your responsibility, you know, you know, I felt I owed it to him to, you know, and he expected, you know, recommendation on each one of these instances. And yeah, sometimes he disagreed. Uh, and, uh, he disagreed very loudly and, uh, he questioned my sanity, but at the same time, you know, I would say overwhelmingly 90% of the time he would accept uh, the recommendation and we would release a statement, uh, under his name, um, and under my name that, uh, we both agreed with and, uh, we would move on. But a lot of those decisions um, you know, guys were really what I call bright line decisions. There wasn't a lot of wiggle room within the rules to do anything other than what the rule required. And that included, you know, the suspensions in 2007 in the Phoenix and San Antonio series. Um, you know, albeit it was a difficult decision, it was a bright line decision because the rule explicitly says that you can't leave the vicinity of the bench. And there had been many, many games prior to that game where players left the vicinity of the bench and players were automatically suspended one game. Uh, this one just happened to come at the most inopportune time against a team, uh, the Phoenix Suns, that I felt, quite frankly, was the best team in the NBA that season. So – in terms of the details of those discussions, and, and that's a, a great one because, like you said, it, it's it's clear to you guys. We had seen it in the past, Heat Knicks prior to that. You had seen where players were, boom, sorry, automatic suspension. It's just it's the way we have to do it. We're cleaning up the game in that in that regard. So on the nights like 2007, what does it actually look like, the discussions that you have? And how much are you starting to talk about do we need to discuss whether this rule needs to be changed or the fallout, what the fallout's going to be? What does that discussion between the two of you look like? No, we, we, we understood the fallout was going to be um, substantial, but there was never any discussion about changing the rule because the, the, you know, the, the germ of the rule, as you recall, was the, you know, Rudy Tom, Tom Janovich, Kermit Washington skirmish that mm -hmm. happened. Um, you know, uh, decades before where, the punch. uh, yeah, you know, Rudy received a punch from, you know, a, a player that basically blindsided him that wasn't, uh, you know, a part, a part of the game and, and, you know, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, and, and, an altercation ensued after that, uh, you know, bench clear, clearing brawl. And, you know, the rule was put in place because the participants on the court at the time, the five players, and the, you know, and and the referees, you know, if you allow people to come off the bench in a blindsided way, they can't protect themselves, and bad things can happen. So that's why we the rule was put in place, uh, not allowing uh, players not in the game to come away from the vicinity of the bench. The only people that were allowed were the coaches, and they were allowed out there only as peacemakers. Um, so. Uh, it, it's a good rule. There was never any talk about changing it. But again, you know, it was a pretty bright line rule and it took some years for players and coaches to get used to it. But when they did almost to, you know, uh, the incident, players didn't come off the bench. They didn't do it. And now all of a sudden you've got, uh, you know, uh, Amari Stoudemire, Boris Diaw, 
not only coming away from the vicinity of the bench, they, you know, almost made it down to the other bench. And I'm, I'm probably exaggerating, but you get my point. So, mm-hmm. yes, that, that, you know, the, the, the rule was a, blo- a bright line rule. It was a decision we had to make, even in the face of some pretty negative extreme fallout. What was the deepest breath you took before picking up the phone when you knew someone on the other line was calling about discipline that you just handed down? <laughs> the deepest breath? Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what. I, I, I mean, it's funny. The deepest breath I ever had to take was the time I had to suspend one of my ex-players, Charles Oakley. He had cold-cocked another player, uh, you know, during a time that actually wasn't during the game. And, you know, uh, you know, generally when you hand down suspension, you call the team first, okay, because it's a responsibility. The, the player's behavior at the end of the day is, is the responsibility of the teams. Mm-hmm. So you appropriately call the team first. And then you make the offer to speak to the player if he chooses to speak with somebody at the NBA and that person would, you know, more likely be me. So that's the way the process normally works. On this particular incident, you know, I sort of broke rule. I I called the team, but immediately I took it upon myself to call Charles himself personally because, you know, he meant a lot to me, still does to this day. And uh, I just wanted to call and tell him what was going to, what he was going to hear from his team. And uh, but in doing so, I, I got to tell you, I was really nervous because I know Charles in a little bit different way. Um, he's a very good guy, a very principled guy, one of the hardest working players I've ever coached. Uh, the guy would play hurt, play sick. Uh, you know, did all the dirty work that every good team needs. Uh, out of one player, he was that guy. And I always appreciated him. I admired him then. I admire him today. So that was a tough phone call for me. And he couldn't have handled it better. You know, I told him. And you know what he said to me? He said, Stu, look, man. He said, you got to do what you got to do. He said, and furthermore, I'm not going to be like the rest of these guys. And bitch and moan about my suspension. He said, I'm going to serve my suspension like a man. I am not going to complain about it. And, you know, you ain't got to worry about me. Was this the Bulls fight with the Lakers? No, this is when he hit uh, Jeff McGinnis. Oh. He hit Jeff McGinnis. So, you know, so. That's unfair. I mean, I got <laughs> off the phone and I get, man, that, that guy, you talk about a principled guy. And, uh, you know, I was the one that ended up feeling bad. (laughs) And I I didn't get suspended. We just had, Stu, we just had Joe Henderson on last week. And Oakley was one of his assistants in Charlotte. And he was telling us that they had to break up fights when Oakley was an assistant because he went after Kwame Brown. He went after Joe Wallace. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and Oakley... You know how most people or most players, when they fight, whether it's in practice or, you know, uh, on a game, most times you get in these skirmishes and, you know, the combatants, they're like waiting for their cavalry to come in. They know that other players are coming in to break it up, you know, end it, right? So there's sort of like no harm, no foul. When Charles faced off against a player, 
he was there to throw blows. He was not waiting for the cavalry to come in or other players. And that's what made him. (laughs) Exactly. And he didn't need it. So it was a little bit different deal with him. All that time with David Stern. Is there a a personal story from him that is away from everything that you guys were doing on the basketball court that you will always take with you? Yeah, you know, David was, uh, you know, he, he was he was an interesting guy and you know, great leader. Oftentimes, uh, very difficult to to work for, uh, and intensely you know, focused in on the NBA and the issues of the day or, you know, the strategic direction of the of the organization. That's all that consumed him. It consumed him. Okay. But I, I remember, you know, it, it was almost like he broke role one day with me. And it was a day that I brought my father into the office. And, you know, I was a little nervous about it. Um, but you know, I, I, you know, my father wanted to meet him. So I set up an appointment to, you know, meet him for like 10 minutes. And David ended up talking to my father, um, for like 45 minutes. And the conversation was really just, you know, he started off, uh, you know, as only David could do and said, you, you know, he told my father, I don't know how you raised such a bad son like this guy, you know. Uh, but then, you know, he was joking, obviously. But then he went on to, you know, talk to my father about who he was and what he had done and about his life. And, and my father had a very interesting life. And, you know, I, I left there and, uh, you know, just stunned because, A, I'd never seen David like that before, just so personally involved in a conversation, uh, you know, with someone and B I left there feeling like, you know, here's a man that, you know, is highly driven, but he really cares about people. He didn't have to do that. Spend that time with my father, you know, uh, you know, given his schedule, but he did. And the content of that conversation was what struck me and I'll never forget it. You mentioned your father had a a very interesting life at what age, were you when you realized and figured out the details of such an interesting life? You know, I, I lived it with him, but it really wasn't until, you know, he was much older and I was an older adult that I understood what he was about, you know, and, you know, my father was, um, you know, um, a very hardworking guy. He was a civil engineer by trade. Um, you know, he was, you know, someone that, uh, you know, loved all people, uh, really had a zest for travel. Um, he worked in, you know, um, you know, over like a dozen different countries, um, you know, uh, most of which is after I was grown. Um, you know, he, he loved to travel. He loved different types of people, different cultures. And, you know, he just, that was him, you know, and uh, I, I mean, you know, he hauled, uh, you know, my mother around uh, all through, um, you know, the Middle East and uh, in Africa in faraway places. Um, one of my sisters actually ended up graduating from the American University of, in, in Cairo. Um, I had a, my youngest sister who actually spent her elementary school years 
the middle school years um, in Cairo. So it was just, you know, he took us on a journey that, you know, I feel fortunate that a lot of people don't, don't, don't have. And, um, you know, so, and I'm, I'm always, in, you know, grateful for, to him for that because it, it developed uh, certain qualities in all of, uh, all of his children um, in terms of gaining an appreciation for just, uh, you know, how global this planet, um, you know, really is. And, um, you know, again, I'm grateful for that. All right, we appreciate all the time, Stu, and we're going to wrap this up with a few questions that are completely unrelated to one another, so we're going to jump all over the place. But you're talking about your father and you being at, at Reading High and being a star well before, and it's okay to say well before because you're much older than Lamani Walker and older than Daniel Marshall, but well before those guys. What Give us, give us a little insight into what it was like being such a big star in that time in Reading, Pennsylvania? No, it's a fair question. I mean, I I think, you know, it's not necessarily Reading so much, but I think any time, you know, you uh, grow up in a relatively small city, I mean, Reading at the time when I was growing up was much larger than it is now. I mean, at at the time I was growing up, there were like 100,000, 110,000 people there, which is, you you know, a small city, but it is a city. And, uh, it, you know, Reading was a city that was uh, very much focused on the game of basketball. You know, at our high school, the football teams at that time were not very good. I mean, all the best athletes in the school uh, played basketball. They didn't play football. And every year the basketball team won 25 games. The football team won zero to one game. You know, they just weren't very good um, because it was such a basketball-centric city. And when you're a good player and a star in a small city of your high school team, um, you know, there's a certain amount of reverence that, you know, you're afforded, uh, you know, as that high school athlete. And uh, it has its pluses and its minus. I, you know, I can remember as a high school student, you know, pretty much living in a fishbowl at a very early age and far before, you know, my professional career. But I got a taste of it even as a high school player. Um, you know, but at the same time, man, it was great. I mean, you know, every game in high school was sold out. Um, I think the gymnasium at the time, you know, sat 2,200 people. We played at a junior high school because hmm. the high school gym wasn't big enough. Huh. Uh, and, you know, uh, but it was packed every single game. And then by the time Danielle came along and Lonnie Walker came along, they played at a gym at the high school, which sat, you know, I think, you know, well over 3,000, um, you know, in, in the arena. Uh, the, there was a center-hung scoreboard. I mean, it was just immaculate, and it was also filled every single night. So, you know, the, the, the tradition of Reading High basketball really dates back well before me. I mean, you have to understand, my first game that I went to I went to see with my dad and see my cousin play. And the coach of that high school team was Pete Carrill. I was a high school coach. I was a high school coach at Reading High School at the most impactful time in my life. That was my introduction to basketball, was a Pete Carrill coach team. So, so, you know, I mean, there's just the history there, you know, from Pete Carrill uh, there was a player that Pete uh, coached who was an idol of mine named Billy Jenkins, 
who was recruited by John Wooden at UCLA. And the reason he didn't go to UCLA is because, you know, he was, you know, it was for academic reasons. He ended up going to junior college. Uh, Billy Jenkins ended up going to junior college at Long Beach City Junior College, ended up going, you know, and playing at Long Beach State, you know, with some great teams there. So that was sort of like, you know, my, my role model. And, you know, being a basketball player in Reading, Pennsylvania, it was, it was a big deal. But there were high expectations. And, again, I use this word all the time, and expectations of, uh, of excellence because of the players that played there, the coaches that coached there. And, uh, you know, uh, that's just the way it was. Uh, so you had a lot of attention, but you were expected to win. And not just win, but win big. Uh, because, you know, there was a legacy there, you know, with the Billy Jenkins and the Gary Walters and the Pete Carrills and, and you know, Joe Natals and Paulie Troikas and, and people like that that came before you. And that was the environment that I grew up in. And it wasn't just a basketball tradition. John Updike is from Reading, Pennsylvania. So it's a uh, great novelist, great novelist as well. Stu, um, you were coaching – when the Knicks beat the Bulls with 0.1 seconds remaining, the Trent Tucker rule comes into effect from that game. Um, looking back now, as someone who then was associated with the league later, what did you think about all that transpired and the fact that you were a part of a game that's now referred to and will be referred to forever when people talk about last-second shots? Yeah, that I, what I tell people is, boy, that was a hell of a play I drew up, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. <laughs> <laughs> but that being, that being said, there's no way that, you know, with that play, you could make a – Chet Tucker made that catch going away from the basketball. He made the catch. He turned, you know, and then he shoots a jump shot in .1 seconds. It's, it's a physical impossibility, and that's why they changed the rule. Uh, but, you know, that being said, um, I got the benefit of winning at least one game uh, before that rule was changed. So, uh, you know, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was kind of an interesting time. But, uh, yeah, you're right. That, that shot forever changed that rule. Again, as, as Noah pointed out, these, these are all over the place. I, you've been really outspoken in such a good way about what's going on in our country right now with Black Lives Matter and all you leave the NBA before everything went down in terms of the castle crumbling with Donald Sterling from, from afar, as you watch that. And obviously you had had dealings with him while you were with the league. What were your thoughts on everything that took place there? You know, I, I, I was proud. I mean, I, I, I was proud. I was proud of the way the players themselves reacted to the Donald Sterling situation. And I was really proud of the new commissioner, Adam Silver, and the swift action that he took um, and the intolerance that the players and the commissioner uh, exhibited with respect to, you know, um, racist behavior uh, and dialogue, you know, from Donald Sterling. I, you know, I thought it was great. And it was, uh, I, I thought, a, you know, a watershed moment in terms of just, um, you know, establishing um, the new consciousness of, you know, racism and social behavior uh, in the NBA, um, you know, onward from that moment. 
Um, and, you know, it, it, I mean, I can't say any, any other way. I was just really proud to see that that that, that took place. And, um, you, you know, you fast forward to what's going on currently in our country today, and there's never been more of a need to express that consciousness around racism and social injustice uh, by people that can effectuate uh, and move uh, minds, you know, to that degree. I mean, it's funny today, I was just looking online at the uh, court that the NBA, uh, and it's a small thing, but it's, it's a thing. I mean, the court that they put down in Orlando that the players are going to play on, and there's this huge NBA logo in the middle of it, and right, you know, three-point line to three-point line, there it is in bold letters, Black Lives Matter. I mean, what a statement that's going to make when the sporting world begins to focus on uh, the restart of NBA basketball uh, coming up in a very short time. And it just, it just makes a statement that uh, I, I think uh, exemplifies where this country has come in terms of, you know, being aware of, you know, the, you know, the struggles that black people have and people of color have, you know, had for hundreds of years. Um, you know, the, even the term Black Lives Matter as recently as three years ago, it was akin to many people, a four-letter word. And now it's just common speak. And I think that that's a very makes a very powerful statement in terms of where we are and where, more importantly, where we're moving, you know, as a country. Along those lines, Stu, and since you're involved in, in NBA policy for so long, why does the policy still exist that players must stand for the anthem? What's the point of having that written down as a rule? I, you know, I think like old, like many rules, it's it's an old rule. And may not be totally appropriate in today's environment. Um, and as much as you have that rule, I think if you get a situation where players don't stand for the anthem and take and take a knee uh, in the interest of highlighting um, wrong police behavior, in the interest of highlighting racism and injustice in this country. And you take a knee to exemplify that during the anthem because you love your country. I don't think that rule will get enforced. So, uh, again, you know, the rule is the rule. It's not really it's not appropriate for today. And I suspect, uh, you know, at some point they'll probably alter the language. Um, they won't alter the language to a point where, you know, it can even be conceived that you're disrespecting the anthem or disrespecting the flag, but just alter the language to allow for an expression of, uh, of, of what you believe in. And um, I, I mean, that, that's, my, that's my view on it. All right, so where's the Big East basketball bubble going to take place? The Big East basketball <laughs> bubble. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I will say that, you know, a bubble, a bubble concept in college is not, you know, the same as a bubble concept with professionals, you know, 
uh, I mean, you know, listen, it doesn't mean that we wouldn't explore it, but, you know, we got student athletes that have to go to school <laughs> during the day and, <laughs> you know, there are all sorts of, sorts of other issues, but uh, certainly it's something that we would look at just in the interest of doing our proper due diligence. But in, but in all seriousness, with everything going on and everything that is on your plate every day, are there days that you just wake up and say, my God, like, what is going on here? Yeah, but no more than anybody else. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's, it's hit all of us. I mean, it's just this new normal and the work day as we look at it now has been significantly altered. Our, altered. our personal lives have been altered. Our relationships have been altered uh, and, and come down to, you know, how well we uh, do on Zoom. Uh, so it, it's just a, a trying time. And uh, the unfortunate part is, uh, the end of these times aren't going to come anytime soon. All right. So Stu, we, this podcast is the rejecting the screen podcast. So we always end our podcast by asking our guests one guy. It's like the old back of the bus question. One guy you would choose game seven life on the line to reject the screen, go ISO and get you a bucket. In your case, want to ask the one guy that you coached, could have been an assistant at the time, head coach, what have you. One guy that you coached over the course of your career that you would choose to go ISO and get you a bucket when you absolutely needed one. Yeah, without hesitation, uh, Patrick Ewing. Oh, maybe you'd say Richard Griffith. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that, but he's my guy, though. But, yeah, I love Richard. But Patrick, you know, I, you know, he, he, and just because he'd get a good shot off, he'd create space. You know, I, I think, you know, he, he would try to will a win. Stu, we really do appreciate all the time. Continued good health to you and just good luck, I guess. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Appreciate you guys again for having me. Oh, Thanks so much, Stu. Appreciate you. So the Charles Oakley, Jeff McGinnis story is, as, as we're talking to Stu, I look it up, and apparently it was over a personal matter the report that I read from the LA Times, it was when Oakley was with the Raptors and Jeff McGinnis was with the Clippers. And there was some sort of long going argument about some woman that they both knew and practices were finishing up. <laughs> they both and, knew. And Clippers practice was finishing up. Raptors practice was starting. And Charles Oakley just walked right on over with a ring on his hand just walked right on over to Jeff McGinnis and punched him in the head. <laughs> but he took his suspension like a man. Yeah, and then they played They played the next night, or they played that night, or, or maybe it was the next night, but they played, and McGinnis played with a massive bruise on his face. Oh, Charles Oakley had to be, has to be like the, the greatest teammate in some respects. But... But you do not want to get him upset. That is no, I always, I always see the Stackhouse is the last guy you'd ever want to piss off. Oh, no. I mean, I don't want to piss off Jerry Stackhouse. No, of course not. I'd rather piss off Stackhouse than Charles Oakley. Oh, I mean, just thinking about – forget the ring. Just thinking about Charles Oakley's size compared to Jeff McGinnis. And, oh, that sounds like just a devastating punch. Oh, like, like a cartoon – and it was always we could take it in so many different directions at one point i'm gonna we're gonna play and Stu would have been a good guess but like playing six degrees of Stu jackson or six mm. degrees of whoever the guest is 
mm-hmm. because he's touched he's touched so many from going all the way back to you know like like Pete Carrill like played at Reading High Pete Carrill used yep. to coach Reading going all the way back to there and his number thirty two is retired at Reading High but the Mark Jackson stuff is wild that Mark that Mo Cheeks was the guy and Mark's Jackson's minutes dwindled and dwindled and dwindled throughout that series. And it's not something that, I mean, I didn't grow up a Knicks fan. And at the time I was eight years old, I don't, that I went back and was, was reading about. And when reading about when Stu got fired from the Knicks, Mark Jackson's quote was, I'm looking forward to the change. Oftentimes in the players you get, yeah, it was, you know, it's an unfortunate situation. Yeah. Um, you know, best of luck. You know, we, you know, we, Really like the guy, et cetera. Mark Jackson, I'm looking forward to the change. And also, Stu was hired by the Knicks the same day the Bulls hired Phil Jackson. Yes. Jackson and Jackson, no relation, as they as they wrote about in the papers. I, I will say it's interesting, too, to think that that he gets the job at such a young age, first ever head coaching job, leads them into the playoffs, and they upset the Celtics, as we talked about, after being down 0-2. And you mentioned they're getting destroyed. I mean, they give up 157 points in Game 2, come back to win that series against the Celtics. And granted, it was on the downside of the Celtics' run, but still Reggie Lewis is there, Larry Bird's still there, uh, Dennis Johnson. So still so much about to be celebrated in regards to that Knicks win. And to think that it's the following year we're, we're talking about um, not having a job anymore is just, that's just bananas. It's, it's, it's just crazy how the NBA can be sometimes. Uh, but yeah, remarkable to go through his career, everything that he has done. When you talk about NBA guys that I think about, you worked at the league, but I, I didn't, but I think about like the guys that exemplify like who the NBA is all about. He's, he's right there at the top of the list. He is an NBA guy. And, and another topic that we didn't get to, when in between when he left the Knicks and went to Wisconsin, he worked mm-hmm. at the league as a basketball ops guy. And he was part of the group putting the dream team together. Not, not yes. choosing the players, I don't think, but that was a big focus of his was the dream team. And then he ended up leaving in March for Wisconsin before – the Olympics in Barcelona. Think about how extensive a guy's career has to be in the basketball world that he was in, largely responsible for for gathering a lot of what Gavitt was putting together for the dream team and all that went involved with that. And we do an hour and a half with the guy and don't even mention it. That tells you that you have some some resume. That's unbelievable. Who do you think would last longer? In a sauna, <laughs> you or me? Oh, that's a good question. You know what? Probably me. I I, I would dip. I, I know my limits. I know my limits, and you're and you're mentally tough. You know what I mean. So I, I think I haven't I haven't spent much time in a sauna in my life. At the end of the day, I trust that you could you could outlast me in a sauna. At least I'm going to say that to keep up the goodwill between. Oh us. really? Oh oh, I I don't think I would because I'm the type of guy that. <laughs> You're like I'm going through an experience, and and then in my head I'll just say, "What am I doing? Why? What? Why? Why? I'm out of here. See ya. Like I don't want to be here, so I'm gonna leave." 
<laughs> you can follow us on Instagram at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. I did post today without Avery's permission. I just put mm. something up. We got Adam's on you. Twitter at Naismith Lives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V. Make sure you're listening to everything else going on on the Locked On Podcast Network, especially mm-hmm. now with the season back in full swing, the restart season. Locked On NBA five days a week, the national program. Locked On Fantasy Hoops with Josh Lloyd, Hollinger, and Duncan every Monday. John Hollinger, Nate Duncan, their unique takes. Chad Ford's NBA Big Board, all things NBA draft, and of course, your team every day. That is the slogan of the Locked On Podcast Network. Adam, thanks, pal. You are the best.